Hi there, and welcome to Manningham Christian Centre's Sermon of the Week. I'm so glad you joined us. My name is Matt Wyatt, and I'm the lead pastor here. My prayer for you is that as you listen, you encounter God and find this message practically helpful. It would mean a lot to us if you were able to rate and subscribe. This not only lets us know how we can serve you better, but also spreads the message to those who need to hear it. Hey, thanks so much again, and I look forward to catching up with you later. Bye. Thanks, Jody. Thank you. Yeah, the only thing worse than having a great preacher introduce you is actually interviewing a great preacher. Have you ever done that? Uh, you ask one question 20 minutes later. Uh, I've done interviews in church services where I've leant over and tapped the person on the shoulder and said, I'm supposed to be asking questions. Uh, it's wonderful to be here. Thank you, Jody, for the, the introduction and uh, your word of encouragement to us. You know, as we look at the culture and we look at some of the ideologies that are rising up that are standing against us that are a challenge to the church, we should remember where the church started. We should remember that small group of frightened people in the upper room. We should remember the, the, the Holy Spirit coming on them. We should remember that 3,000 of them uh, were, were, were followed, agreed to follow Jesus after Peter spoke on the day of Pentecost. And remember that just a couple of chapters later, it looked like it was all gonna fall apart. Remember that piece? That Stephen is stoned and everybody left at that point. And at that point, it looked like the future of the Christian church hung in the balance because they all ran back to their homes. And guess what happened? They preached the gospel wherever they went and that grew the church. I mean, this the whole notion of, of living in a difficult culture or a challenging culture, a culture that stands in opposition to the, to the gospel. One of the stories that we did in, G, in, in Jesus the Game Changer 2, which surprised and challenged me, was in a country that most of you might not, have, might not think about as, a, as, a, as, a, as a, a culture where the gospel has been existent for a long time. And that's actually in Japan. Now, Japan only has about 1% or 2% Christians now. But the Christian gospel came to Japan through Jesuits in, in the 16th century. And the remarkable thing is that it grew quite quickly in the southeast of Japan or the southwest of Japan around Nagasaki. And uh, as it grew, uh, the shoguns at first were quite um, open to the Christian gospel and it grew to, as we said, over 100,000 people. And interestingly, if you've ever seen the movie Silence or read the book Silence, the movie is awful. It's awful, isn't it? It's just awful to watch. But what happened in Japan was the shoguns decided that they didn't want foreigners and they didn't want foreign religions and they're going to stamp out Christianity. For 200 and 50 years, every year you had to be registered with the Buddhist local church. And when you went to the Buddhist local church every year, especially in that area around Nagasaki, you had to prove that you weren't a Christian, that you're a Buddhist. And to do that, you had to step forward and they had two, two plates. I've forgotten the names of them right now, but one was the face of Jesus and one was the face of Mary. And you had to step forward and step on the face of Jesus and step on the face of Mary every year. And people would watch very closely. And if you didn't look like you were absolutely sure about what you were doing, they would start to ask questions. 
People daubed on each other within the community. And if you were found to be a Christian, they didn't torture you. They tortured your family until you recounted, recanted your faith. And they didn't want to kill you because they wanted you to recant on your faith in Jesus. That lasted for seven generations. And then in, uh, in the middle of the, the 20th century, around 1950-60, Japan was opening up to foreign nations and they decided that one of the things to do in Nagasaki was to actually build a church where foreign nation, the Christians that were now in the country could, could kind of meet. And so they built this little church on the side of the hill in Nagasaki. We filmed there. And when the church was first opened by a French priest, people came out of the woodwork. Seven generations who followed Jesus secretly within Japan. So the next time you feel like you're being beaten up by a bad culture, we've actually got it easy. And that's still happening around the world in different places. The only reason I tell you that story is because most people don't know it. And it's the most moving, powerful and remarkable stories of Christian history around the world. Started by the Jesuits in the 16th century. What I want to do is to, is to actually kind of land some of the things I've tried to talk about over the last two days to say, so what does it mean for the local church? What does it mean for you leading a local church wherever you are within the Australian or even any Western context? What does it mean to be a, a church leader? What, is the church, what should the church look like? What are some of the steps that we should take? How do we respond to the culture that we've seen? How do we respond to some of the things we're talking about? And so I've got several things I want to say. And the first is this, cultural engagement, not capitulation. That's the role of the church. In lots of places around the world, especially in Canada, America and, and the UK, certainly some of it here in Australia as well, where many churches feel like the way forward is capitulation, not engagement. And what they're doing is to shift what the, how they understand the Word of God to find ways where those who are living certainly outside what I believe the Bible teaches clearly on sexuality, on sexual relations, etc. There's a sense of, well, we're an affirming church. We're not going to stand against this. I'm sure that God loves all people and because God loves everybody and God created everybody the way they are, we should accept and love them. We should accept and love everybody. We should accept and love all who they are. We should uh, allow them to come to Jesus as they are, but Jesus never left anybody as they are. They changed them over time, just like He changed you, just like He's changed me, just like He's changing everybody. Coming as you are doesn't mean staying as you were. And cultural capitulation is this notion that we just give in to the culture. So what is it that we need to do in engaging the culture? And there's a couple of things I want to say about engaging the culture in which we live, keeping all the things I've said in mind about the rising ideologies that have become religious uh, fervour within the community, all the pressures on the church. One is that free democratic Western nations have been built on freedom of thought, freedom of expression and freedom of religion. That's a foundation stone of Western democratic nations. And we ought to protect that. We ought to stand up for it. It's not a matter, it's not just a matter of saying, well, we're Christians and we have a right because of the influence we've had on Australia over the years. We have a right to say what we want. That's partly true. But the other piece is we are a free democratic nation. And in a free democratic nation, everybody has a right of expression. And religion has a right of expression. And people of faith have the right of expression. In the midst of that, 
there's a thing that's vitally important and it's called the separation of church and state. Now in the separation of church and state, that's often talked about as, therefore the church should have no say in the state. That's not why separation of church and state was developed. It was actually, that, that little phrase came from 1802, where a church called Banbury Baptist Church in the United States wrote to Thomas Jefferson, who was the president, and, and complained about some tension with local government. And Thomas Jefferson wrote a letter back to them which said that there should be a wall of separation between the church and the state. Now, why is he saying there should be a wall of separation? Where, where was America settled from? England. What was happening in England at the worst of those times? That the state represented by the king and all of those wrapped around the royalty and the bishops and the church were melded together. In fact, there was a stage where you were fined if you did not go to your local Anglican church. If you wanted to be a separate faith and religion like Pentecostals or Baptists or any like that, you, you were actually in a legal position. And in, in, if that's the background that America was settled out, settled from, what is, what is Thomas Jefferson saying? That's not our future. Our future is not that the church will dominate, the, sorry, that was not that the state will tell the church how to function. There will be a separation between those two. Remember what I told you about the 1836 Church Act? Remember I talked about the fact that the, uh, Richard, names just jumped out of my head, decided that he was, he, he was going to, Richard Burke, who was the governor of New South Wales, decided he wanted that religion was, was good for society and, and, and having religion within the community was good and that's only gonna exist if we built churches. Remember I told you he built four, there were four denominations, Catholics, Anglicans, Presbyterians, Wesleyans. Why did he have four? Because the sectarian violence of the UK he didn't want to see in Australia. And he didn't choose one, which was the Church of England, represent the royalty in the Church of England that, that founded Australia. He didn't want to see the tension between the Church of England and the Catholic Church that had been existent and wars for years in the country he came from. And his notion was, we're gonna build churches and we're gonna build four churches. We're gonna break down the sectarian violence. But the whole notion is, there's a separation between church and state. And so when the state comes to the church and says, we don't believe that you should believe this, we don't believe that you should do this, and to be frank, we don't believe that you should be allowed to choose the people that you employ, we will stand and say, that's not your job. This is our role. And where there's a separation of your powers and our powers, and that's best for community, all the people of community. As an aside, there's a book by Dr. Michael Bird, comes from, uh, teaches at Ridley College in Melbourne. It's called Religious Freedom in a Secular Age. And if this is an issue for you, that's worth a read. Religious Freedom in a Secular Age by Dr. Michael Bird. A free and open society will contain peoples whose views and expressions we dislike. And that's what we need to get used to. This little phrase that used to that grew up in our family. When I was a dad, you know, I just wanted to show you what a great dad I was. When I was a dad and the kids were growing up and there'd be tension and all sorts of stuff. And one of the things that we used to say a lot, suck it up, princess. <laughs> Probably won't go down in the annals of great parenting phrases. And in some ways within the, within the community, when we see views that we dislike, there's a bit of suck it up, princess in that as well. Because a free 
open society will express views that we find hard to deal with. It doesn't mean we agree with them. It doesn't mean that we capitulate to them. It doesn't mean that we give up, we sort of give up. But in that sense, we actually have to recognise that they have a right to exist. Dealing with opinions you dislike is about maturity and it's about freedom. And that's what we need to do. There's a guy, Salem Rushdie. You know who Salem Rushdie is? Author. He had a fatwa against him for years and years. He in fact, was attacked, I think, just last year, the year before. He's lost one eye when an Islamist attacked him in the street. And he, he wrote this statement. So this is a pretty remarkable from a guy that's been in that, through that situation. There is no right in the world not to be offended. There's no right in the world not to be offended. And one of the tension points that you, and I spoke to somebody who's working in universities and connecting with universities, one of the tension points about universities, which I mentioned that book by Jonathan Haidt called Coddling of the American Mind, is this idea that I ought to be protected from concepts I disagree with or concepts I find hard to deal with. The idea that, that universities in Western nations would stop people hearing ideas that confront them is a bizarre concept because building a nation and building a great people and freedom of thought, religion and belief means that you're gonna have to deal with ideas you don't like. In the midst of all of that, our task is to let the gospel be an offence, not us be an offence. That's not, don't you be the offence. Don't be offensive. When you share the gospel, the gospel will be offensive. And many people will be offended by the gospel. They oughtn't be offended by how you communicate the beautiful message of Jesus. We're about this notion of being a cultural engagement, not capitulation. And the last thing to say on that as a really practical thing is don't give up on the public square. Don't withdraw from the public square. Don't recognise that even though that your views are pushed back on, ridiculed, put down, that somehow you should pull your views out of the public square. Your views, our views, the Christian worldview has every right to be in this public square just like everybody else's. So be in there, but be people of grace, goodness, beauty, truth, and don't be offensive in the process. So cultural engagement, not capitulation. But the second thing to say, and these are really practical things for you as church leaders, as we think about all that's been happening, that I said yesterday morning, all that's been happening in the loss of reputation of the Christian church across Western nations, partly because of Christian nationalism, I said, the crisis of integrity of at evangelical churches, partly as Christian nationalism, but the second was a failure of Christian leadership. And all of us, every person in this room, if you're in Christian leadership, authentic and trustworthy Christian leadership is now ultimately most important. You need to be trustworthy people. In the last 10 years, I said yesterday morning, and let me repeat it again, this crisis of evangelical leadership has truly been a crisis. I mean, you've had the sexual failures of Ravi Zacharias. I'll come back to that later. But that, 
absolutely appalling. I mean, we, we interviewed people from Ocker. We actually asked Ravi Zacharias at least two or three times to be on our series. He wasn't able ever to do an interview with us. We, followed, we interviewed numbers of people from the, the RZIM organisation. And for those of you who haven't heard the story that after his death, an organisation that's had enormous influence around the world, after his death it came out that he'd had sexual relationships with numerous women over many years in different places, even paying for some of them to live in particular units and supporting him. And when he was in town in countries around Asia, he would visit them for his own personal pleasure. Everybody was, on myself, as a guy called Dan Patterson, who's an Australian who used to work with them, everybody in that organisation totally gobsmacked that this happened. But then you, you had the, the Bill Hybels, which is quite different situation, and yet the same sort of failure. The notion that, 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 that there's been abusive and inappropriate relationships by key leaders across the globe. Secondly, financial impropriety. I mean, the, the, the Hillsong thing out of East America and the way they've used funds was actually appalling. And there was clearly people who were pushing back within, within that whole scope of ministry saying some of these decisions are poor decisions. Last year, Andrew Wilkie, who's an independent member of the federal parliament from Tasmania, tabled in federal parliament somebody who was a whistleblower in the Hillsong organisation, get your head around this, 17 ring binders. Imagine how much material that is. 17 ring binders of, of, of the finances of Hillsong and how it was used. And in the end, how it was in many places misused. Financial impropriety has been awful. And the third is poor leadership models, which are about ego, narcissism, bullying and harassment. One of those was Mark Driscoll, who finished up at his church at Mars Hill. The church basically imploded and closed within four weeks, then moved to Phoenix, Arizona and promptly opened a new church. If you, if you haven't listened to, I'm not necessarily uh, recommending you listen to this, but there's, a, there's a, a, about a 16 part podcast by a guy called Mike Cosper, who's a, a, an outstanding individual. And Mike Cosper does this podcast called The Rise and Fall of Past Mars Hill. It is excruciating to listen to because what it's about is poor leadership. It's, a, it's about bullying and harassment. It's about poor attitudes in leadership. And why did nobody say something all these years before? Because it was successful. Because there's thousands of people turning up. Because somehow God seems to be working through this individual. And the idea that we would have somebody in a leadership role who's behaving enorm poorly in any area of life, but nobody says no because it's successful. Do you know that Mars Hill went from 30,000 people to none in about four weeks? Just closed. Now, how do we get to that space? We get to that space when we're not authentic and trustworthy in leadership. There's a little passage in Ephesians when Paul writes to the church in Ephesus. And he says this in chapter five, verse three. But among you, there not, must not even be a hint. Now, I want to just stop there. Not even a hint. He's saying that if the line is over there about what's reasonable and what's not, keep here, not over there. The idea is not having your toes hanging over the line so you can stay okay. 
in your, in your relationships with people of the opposite sex, in the way that you treat the people that you work with, in the way that you deal with your, your finances, not even a hint. Now, Paul, Paul goes on to say not even a hint of sexual immorality. And we think, oh, well, Paul's kind of really concerned about sexual immorality. He's concerned about a lot more than that. And he goes on to say this, or any kind of impurity or greed because they are improper for God's holy people, nor should there be any obscenity, foolish talk, coarse joking, no immoral, impure or greedy person. Such a person is idolater and has uh, any inheritance in the kingdom of God. Let no one deceive you with these empty words. Not even a hint. Let me challenge every one of us, myself as well, could it be said to you of you that there's not even a hint of any of those things in your ministry? That if somebody came with an allegation against you, there would be a sense of, that can't be true. Not even a hint. Now, I think that this, this place of integrity is a really important place for us as a church. Secondly, in the same mode. Oh, by the way, let me just say this. I have a little saying again in, in my own life, in my leadership and kind of goes around to our family as a bit of a saying. And the, and, the, and the saying is this, don't stop three steps short. And in this area, it's something I remind myself every day. So where does that come from? Well, a, uh, uh, Wayne Bennett was coaching the, that's NRL, football, rugby league. Wayne Bennett's coaching the um, Maroons. Like, really, is there any of them here? Like, did you get in? The Queensland team in the state of origin, a number of years, probably 20 years ago. This has been with me for a long time. And there was, an, there was, a, there was a journalist doing a, a story on Wayne Bennett coaching the Maroons team, getting ready for the state of origin. And as he's, as he's watching Wayne Bennett coach them, and Wayne Bennett had sent them on a run, and he'd said there was a big rock on the ground. It was just this big open space. And he said, why don't you run back to the rock? And Bennett stands there as the coach, watching them. And after they'd finished the run, he calls them all in. And the, the, the journalist is listening to this, he calls them all in. And he said, I said to run to the rock. And I noticed a whole bunch of you, a whole bunch of the forwards, stopped three steps over the rock. I asked you to run to the rock. And he said, when we play the Blues next week, the, the team that didn't stop three steps short, they're the ones that are gonna win. Don't stop three steps short. Don't stop three steps short in your training, in your work, in your attitude, in your teamwork. And I've taken that on myself. You know, I used to run. Uh, I gave that up. I bought an expensive bike. So I cycle these days. And in both when I finished my run, and I've done this seriously for 20 years, and I still do it. I did it last week. I rode last Tuesday, and I did it then. This is this, this saying to myself, the last thing I say as I get to my house at the end of a, a ride on my bike or when I used to run at the end of my run, the last steps were, don't stop three steps short. Not in your integrity, not in your relationship with your wife, not in the way you deal with finances, not in the way you behave, not in the way you act. Make sure that it would never be said of you that you stopped three steps short. And that's something I want to live with every day. And I want to be sure I hold myself to it. And a simple thing like saying it in my head as I finish a piece of exercise is a, is a rhythm in my life that says, I don't want ever be accused of stopping three steps short. 
And I pray that that would be true of each of us. None of us sets out to be a failure in ministry. None of us sets out to, 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 to let Jesus down, let the church down, let the community down. None of the people that I've mentioned a little while ago set out in ministry and thought, you know what, at the end of my ministry, I wanna be known as a dismal failure. Nobody sets out to do that. Why does it happen? Because you stop three steps short. You pull out when you should stay on. And, that's, and in those moments, that's what we're called to do. A resurgent of, of servant leadership um, and humility is a prerequisite. When Jesus in John chapter 13 is in the upper room with his disciples, you know this story, don't you? And what's he doing? They're having the last supper, the last time, the last moment with them. And they get to the upper room, the room is ready, the meal is ready, there's only one thing that's not ready. And that is the servant with the lowliest task to wash people's feet. Now keep in mind, when you're wearing sandals, which is a bit of a fashion faux pas, but moving on. When you're wearing sandals and you're a bloke and you live in a hot, dusty climate, washing feet before a meal was a basic prerequisite to enjoy the meal. When, you're, when your feet are lying out behind you, you, you want those feet washed and there's nobody there to do it. And everybody's looking around. And Jesus, if you read chapter 13 of John, says, knowing that he was from God and that he was going back to the Father and understanding who he was before God, because of that, wrapped a, 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 a towel around his waist, got down with a bowl and washed his disciples' feet. And the remarkable thing about Jesus is he took humility from being a vice to being a virtue. Now, this is, we, we cover this and John Dixon has written a great book called Humilitas on this because we tend to think about humility today as a virtue, which is just a virtue that in our community. Well, we, we want our leaders, our political leaders to, to kind of be th those who serve the community and, and, and be humble. No, we don't believe they do. At least pretend you know, like at least pretend. The, the thing that puts anybody off in political leadership to get re-elected is arrogance. And if you come across as arrogant, that's not gonna go well. Why is that the case? Why is it the case that when, when Jim Collins wrote a book called Good to Great and he was looking at one of the, one of the most effective leaders and he, he got to level five leaders. Now this is a guy that's just doing research. He's not a Christian, just in the community, corporate leadership research, what took companies from being good companies to great companies. And he said the best leaders, the best CEOs in the biggest countries around, companies around the world who were most successful had two traits, fierce resolve and humility. Patrick Lencioni wrote a book called The Ideal Team Player. And in The Ideal Team Player, Patrick Lencioni said, the ideal team player has three traits. Guess what one of those three traits was? Humility. Now understand that in Jesus' time, humility was, was not a big deal. In fact, nobody was humbled. Nobody humbled themselves before other people. You only humbled yourself before somebody greater than you. When Jesus said, you know what, you see that the Gentiles and they rule it over you. Any Gentile listening to Jesus said that would have said, yes, of course we do. That's what we all do. The idea that the first would be last is a crazy notion that ran totally contrary to the ethics of the time. It was Jesus, and John Dixon says this, if you look at history, he said, just not a religious point of view, an historical point of view, the, uh, the first time that humility started being talked about and written about as a positive virtue was after the death and resurrection of Jesus. 
in history. One of the things that happens to us within Christian churches, and I think one of the great things, and if I could be as a Baptist talking to Pentecostals, one of the great things about the Pentecostal church as opposed to the Baptist church is you honour your leaders. Baptists tend to vote them out. Um, <laughs> but but I, I think when the, within the Pentecostal tradition, one of the great things has been honouring leaders and honouring who they are and respecting leadership and, and giving leadership the honour that, that, that you feel that they're due. You know what? That's a great thing to do. You know what? But the problem is there's an unintended consequence that some of those leaders start to believe what you say. And that's a, that is a problem. And, and in, in the sense that leadership, Christian leadership, godly leadership, leadership of the local church should be those who are bathed in humility, who are those who are seen by the community and seen by their church as humble leaders. Now, here's the deal about humility. Humility is not walking around apologising for taking up other people's air. You know, it's not this sort of weak, mild... But humility is understanding your brokenness and your failures and your need for the gospel and your need for Jesus. That's what humility is. And that you're not better than anybody else, that everybody has a different role and your role happens to be in leadership. When you grasp that, humility is, as said by someone is, is, is just a true knowledge of yourself. It's about, you know, if you're sitting there thinking, you know, I've got to be, I've got to learn to be a bit humble. I, I got, it's a tough job because I'm pretty good. But I, I'm going I'm to make an effort going to be and make an effort to pass myself off as humble even though I'm fabulous. <laughs> that is a delusion. You're having yourself on. I, a number of years, about two years ago, in my quiet time, I have a prayer list. I, about uh, Every time I pray, I have this prayer list. It's on my phone. It's a fabulous thing. I pray for different things on Monday to Friday. And the top of, Two years ago, I actually just added to the top of my prayer list for myself when I was praying about myself, was reflection and repentance. Just that, just reflection. You know, that, that, don't do it. It's a painful thing to do, honestly. <laughs> you, you, you say, reflect on yourself and start repenting. The Spirit of God speaks to you. And all of a sudden, three weeks later, two months later, two years later, there's no, there, there's no doubt about humility. There's sometimes you wonder whether you should actually get up and do anything. But you know what that is? That's who we all are. That's where we all stand. That's what we need. And if you're thinking, oh gosh, I've got to try and be humble. What you need is a prayer that says, Lord, reveal to me who I actually am. And in that moment, the Spirit of God would speak to you. One of our unintended consequences of honouring leaders is that we've allowed narcissism and ego to get a hold in people's lives that has been incredibly unhelpful for the Christian church. Next, good government and ministry transparency is required. Good governance and ministry transparency. Now you're kind of, I can see the eyes rolling back in some of your heads. You think, oh gosh, governance, Carl, seriously, you know. I'm trying to be inspired here. You're talking about governance. Being sure that you're doing things well in a, in a world that has some questions about the credibility and integrity of the local church is incredibly important. And you know what you and I need? You know what all of us need, especially personalities like I need? I need people to say no. I need people to disagree. I need people to say, you know, I, I, we got a small board, Olive Tree Media, and I remember a couple of years ago, Toby was on the board. I can tell you about Toby later. Fabulous guy, fabulous guy. 
And I came to the board one day with a great idea and I said to the board, here's my great idea. And there's a few guys on the board going, that's pretty good, Carl, you know. And Toby said, Toby looks at me and goes, you know, that's nice, Carl, but seriously, a total waste of time. Now, I need that. I need people to disagree. Um, My wife is a person that finds that enormously easy to do. (laughs) And, okay, no, 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 no bumping here, all right? And it's a gift. That's a gift. Now the problem is we don't like that. And some of us are a bit unsure of who we are as people. And so what we do is we gather people around us that are just like us and surprise, surprise, they, always, they all agree with us. And that works quite well to a point. Let me go back to Ravi Zacharias. This, this behaviour of, of, of Zacharias lasted for ages. And the people kind of who lived close to where his board members lived. And people said, well, why didn't you say something years ago? Why did you wait till after he died? What? And, the, and the response was, well, on the board is his wife, his daughter, his best friends. The board is dominated by his family. That looks bad and is bad for all of us. Be sure that those who are on your boards are those who will challenge you those who are wise. Yes, they don't always challenge you. They won't disagree with everything you say. They'll stand behind you. But your board and your governance is enormously important. It will hold you to the gospel. It will hold you to being a person of integrity. It will ask you difficult questions that you will not like. But you should go home and thank God for those questions because they will hold you in, in good stead. The point we're saying here, why am I saying this? Because one of the issues that faces the church in Australia and across Western countries is the credibility of evangelical leadership. And the only one, one of the ways to deal with the credibility of evangelical leaders is to be leaders that hold to the standards of the gospel, leaders who are marked by humility and leaders that have good governance practices. All of us that run ministries in this room, I would assume all of us, other than those who have kind of businesses on the side, which are quite absolutely right and totally good to do. But for those of you who run your whole ministry built on donations, that means that you have a responsibility to be totally transparent with the donations that you have. And if you are not totally transparent, you have to ask yourself why you're not totally transparent. And you ought to be. Government organisations have to do it. People who raise money for overseas aid have to do it. Everybody within a church, in a ministry organisation, ought to do it as well. You know why? Because it protects you from the sorts of claims that were in those 17 ring binders about how Hillsong used their money. And that's an awful thing to happen. Nobody should be in that space. So what what we need to do is have good governance and ministry transparency Fifthly, a community, a place to belong will be key. This is getting back to what I was saying about loneliness and isolation. One of the things that you have, that one of the things that you hold in your hands, which is your church, your local community, is one of the strongest gifts you have as a gospel opportunity within your community because people want to belong. 
People are lonely, people are isolated. And in that situation, that's a great space. I mean, one of the things that um, Bill's book, I'm just saying this to prove to Bill that I read his book, uh, one of his chapters actually uh, challenges the, the notion of what was called the emerging church a number of years ago. And one of the issues of an emerging church, and I actually, in fact, there's still people that hold some of these views, I'll tell you why in a moment, was that we don't want people to go to church. You know, church is just kind of religious organisations. We need to find new ways, third spaces, cafes, etc., etc., and find new places to meet people because that's what the future of the church will be. It's been a dismal failure. And one of the reasons it's been a dismal failure is because it's actually, it's actually cutting off the arm that gives you the best opportunity within the community. In fact, I listened to a video just recently, in fact, just in the last couple of months, of a church leader was saying, you know, I don't remember Jesus saying, you know, I come down to the synagogue and hear a sermon. I'm like, well, no, Jesus didn't say that, but I think that's missing the point. There's some research that's been done recently. It was done by a lady called Lynn Taylor and it was released in 2019. And Lynn Taylor did a bunch of research. She's from New Zealand, but she did research in Australia. And the research in Australia was asking people who had become, researching with people who had become Christians from a non-church background in the last two years. And, and she did all this kind of work with them, really specific questions and interactions about what helped them make, make a change. Here, here is one of the things that was quite remarkable about what she said. Seven out of ten in that, seven out of nine of those people she interviewed had all attended church before they became Christians. Were all part of church communities. And the point that she's making, because it's called Our Doing Becomes Us, the point that she's making is that it's actually as you're part of a church, part of a community, part of worship, that becomes formative in who you are in coming to Christ. And sometimes what we tend to do is we think, oh, we've got to get that moment where people make the decision and I'm, I'm for it. I do it all the time. I ask people to make responses. I ask them to pray. You will be doing the same thing. Fantastic. But one of the things to keep in mind is that there are some people that come to faith in quite different ways. And it's actually about relationship. Uh, there's a lady in, in Faith Runs Deep. You'll know her. She has blue hair. Uh, her name's Gemma, uh, Gemma Bell. And Gemma runs a, a, a house in the Mornington Peninsula for fusion for troubled teenagers. Her and her husband run this house. Her background was not a faith background. Her husband was having, they, they, they had a kid when she said in the interview where we had no ability to be parents and yet now we're parents. Her husband had a whole bunch of health issues. I'm not sure what they were. And he found that going to church was really important. And he, he said to her one day, you need to come to church because this is really helpful. And she's like, her response was, you, you have got to be kidding. But because it's helpful for you, I'll turn up. And she's just started to come to church and she'd go to church and then wait in the car park. And, and then she you know, turned up to a, to a barbecue that became a Bible study. Bait and switch is not a good approach, but. <laughs> and she talked about her own faith journey. And she said this, you know, it was a bit like being on a train and arriving at a station and thinking, huh, we're here now, I'm a Christian. Now that's messing with all of your theology as it is with mine. Because it feels totally wrong, doesn't it? And just in case you've written her off, C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis, when he came to faith, was walking around the Magdalen Track in Oxford with um, uh, Tolkien, J.R. Tolkien. 
And Tolkien and C.S. Lewis, another guy, Dyson, had this long walk around the Addison Tract till three in the morning. And it was all about discussing mythology and true mythology. And, and he went home and decided that there was a God, theist. And he was the most depressed and downcast convert in all of England. That's his faith story then. But it wasn't, he wasn't a Christian, but he said there is a God. That was, where, that was the big step in his discussion with Tolkien. And then he actually says, if you read his story, he said, then one day I was in a sidecar and his brother was driving the bike and they were going to the zoo and they were travelling to the zoo one day. And as they're travelling to the zoo, he said, when I left home, I wasn't a Christian. When I got to the zoo, I was. <laughs> I've often wondered about how his brother rode. I've often wondered whether that was part of the motivation. Jesus helped me get to the zoo. But here's this, here's this notion. And even one of the, even one of the guys that uh, Lynn Taylor uh, interviewed talked about uh, seeing a, the Bible on the shelf and thinking, I should read that. You know, basically, he was just exploring spirituality. He started reading the Bible. And then he thought, oh, maybe I should go to church. So he just started to go to church. That's all he was doing. And there was these verses that were going through his mind. And, and, uh, and one night he walked outside and the, the, the moon and the stars were fabulous. And, he, and this just popped into his mind that the, the, the stars declare the glory of God. And he thought, hmm, what do you know? I'm a Christian. <laughs> now again, messes with all our theology, doesn't it? But what, is all, what are all of these people about? What it's saying is that relationship, community, and belonging are important. The idea that you sit in the corner of a cafe drinking decent coffee that somehow is going to make a difference, bring them into the church. Make them a part of the community. Help them gather into the people of God. That's your greatest opportunity. That's what people need. Yes, preach the gospel. Yes, ask them to respond. All of that. But don't wait till they, you know, don't wait till you can't come to church or you're saved because you won't like it. That's a crazy notion. Invite them in. Community, belonging, relationship is an incredibly important opportunity that we have. Sixth, serve the community and preach the gospel. Back in the, these, these guys like Bill and Barry Chant will remember this period of time, but um, I'm just picking on people who have been around a while. Uh, back in the 70s and 80s, there was a big argument within the Christian church globally. And the argument was, was is the gospel word or is the gospel deed? And in fact, there was even in the, in the early 1970s, the World Council of Churches wanted to put a moratorium on mission, as in gospel as word mission, because there was so much need around the world and that was not a helpful way to respond. Billy Graham responded by calling the Lausanne uh, Gathering, which created the Lausanne Covenant in 1975. But in all of that period, there was this big discussion globally about is the gospel about deed, so what's the point of teaching the, preaching the gospel to someone with starving to death with, with t in terrible circumstances? Jesus wants us to be there for the least, the last and the lost. God in the Old Testament is the God of the widow, the God of the, in, those in desperate need. Our task is to respond to those in need. That's what we need to do. Bring deed, the gospel is deed. Then other people were pushing against that saying, why, why would you waste your time doing that? Why would you send, this is very crass, I know, but why would you send people with a full stomach to a godless eternity? Oh yeah, well, what's, what's the point of doing that? But their eternity is what's most important, not their, their short time on earth. And the argument went, uh, went on for years and you're all thinking, well, that's a pretty dumb argument. Both of them should be true. And you would be right. 
But in that argument, here's my deal. In that argument, deed has won. Because in a sense, across the Christian church in Western nations, deed is everywhere. And the reason the deed is so, 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 so ubiquitous across the church is that it's concrete, is that it's, it's now, and it's popular. I'm just reading a book by a guy called Dr. Andrew Browning, a wonderful Christian gospel-orientated man who became a gynaecologist so he could work in, to, to fix fistulas in women in Africa. And he spent the last 20 years doing that. He's got a Barbara May Foundation. He started a bunch of hospitals. If you don't know what a fistula is and you've never heard of it, essentially in Africa, so in, in Australia, one in 16,000 women will die in, in childbirth. One in 16,000. In Africa, with no, other, with no other help or no other Western help, in Africa, it's one in 47. And in some places where Andrew Browning first started to work, it was as high as one in 12. Now, what's happening is that these women don't go to hospitals. There's even a culture that says to these women, actually, the way our, our culture works is when times for you to have, have the baby, you go off into the bush, you have the baby, and when you finish having the baby, you bring the baby back. Now, that's all fine if it goes well. But unfortunately, these women... And literally, they say uh, there are two million women probably in Africa, or Nepal, different parts of the world that are in this situation. If you've been stuck in childbirth because the baby's stuck in you for three to four days, what happens is that the weight against your pelvis on that part of your body, it all decays and dies. And a fistula, a hole, is created between those parts of your body. And the baby will die in childbirth. And if you survive the childbirth, you will go home and you will be totally incontinent for the rest of your life. These women have been living like that for two, five, 20 years. And the operation is complex and difficult, but not impossible. And, and, and Andrew Browning is going and operating on these women and they go from being outcast, living in a small room by themselves because they smell so badly that no one wants to be near them to being welcomed back into the whole community. Who doesn't want to see that? They, they now have hospitals that deliver, they have 2,000 babies delivered a, a, each year, not one death, not one fatality, not one day baby birth, not bad birth, not one fistula. That, that is wonderful and we should do that. But we should teach the gospel as well. And the trouble is that so often we can get diverted by thinking our task is the, is, is the deed, the task of deed, when in the end, what we need to have is the task of the gospel as well. And the reason we have the task of the gospel and our passion for the gospel needs to be a reflection of what Paul says when he writes to the church at Rome. And when, he write, when Paul wrote to the church at Rome, he says these words in verse 16. He says, uh, I've got to find verse 16. I've lost it on my page. For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first the Jew, then the Gentile. I am not ashamed of the gospel. And Paul says that, and now we can, we can say that we've got all these pressure points of all these different rising ideologies who think we're a dangerous concept or think we should pull down the, the public square and we think we're in a, a bad space. Think about Paul's life. What do we say in chapter 17 of Acts? Some of them sneered at him when he spoke about the resurrection of Jesus. We know in chapter, chapter when he wrote the second, well, it's the fourth book, but the second book that we have in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he lists 
all the things that went wrong for him. Paul was under pressure physically as well. He says that in, in all of these times, um, he says three times, three times I, uh, five times I received 40 from the Jews, 40 lashes. There were three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I've slept, spent a night and a day in the open ocean. I've been constantly on the move. Basically, it's a litany of difficult times. Paul was treated, sneered at by people. Paul was uh, basically physically abused. Paul was dismissed as being foolish. What does he say in chapter one of Corinthians? Chapter, the letter to the church of Corinth, the first letter we have, chapter one. These people, for, the, for those, for the Greeks, this is foolishness in their mind. And in all of these places, Paul is saying, I believe in the, in the gospel. And I believe the gospel is the aroma of Christ. Do you remember that piece? For some, this is the aroma of death. For some, this is the aroma of life. And that picture is, it's actually in 2 Corinthians chapter five. And he, t- he gives this picture. And for those of you who don't know, I'm sure you all know, but if you don't know, essentially that picture was built on the Greco-Roman world. When the Romans won wars, they would parade back into the city, back into Rome or the major cities. And this was really well known to the people of Corinth. And as they parade in, the victors, the Roman emperor, the Roman guards, the, the, the Roman champions, the, 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 the army, uh, all those leading the army would parade in and they would parade behind them all of the prisoners, all of those who eventually would lose their lives, all of those who had lost the war. And as they paraded in, they would burn incense. Now part of the incense was Partly a worship of their gods, but partly it was this celebration and the incense would be this aroma that would go across the people, go across the troops and go across the prisoners. And Paul would say, for those who were prisoners, it was the aroma of death. For those who were the victors, it was the aroma of life. And Paul's saying, as I can smell the aroma of life. And that's the message of the gospel, that Jesus died rose again and makes a way for every person to be, to be known by Jesus, for every person to be a part of the kingdom of God, for every person to be welcomed in. And that says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And as we come today, recognising that we don't want to be capitulating to our culture, we want, to, we want to stand in the culture. We don't want to be those leaders that are letting the church down. We want to be those who are losing our sense of humility. We want to be those who are acting improperly. We want to be those who build a community, speak into the community. But we want to be those who are not ashamed of the gospel. As I finish up today and finish up with you in this session, my hope that all of us will be reminded not to be ashamed of the gospel because the gospel is a gospel of life for every person, all individuals, every person. And I want to take a moment for us to pray. And I want to ask as a bold step for you to stand as a statement of you being not ashamed of the gospel and for us to stand together and say, Lord, we're not ashamed of the gospel. In a community that stands against us, 
we're not ashamed of the gospel. In rising ideologies that want to push us out of the public square, we're not ashamed of the gospel. For those who follow Jesus on a daily basis, we're not ashamed of the gospel. We're those who believe in the gospel, the power of the gospel, and we give ourselves to see the gospel make a difference in our nation. We want to be those who do deed, but we want to be those who bring the gospel and we will not bring the gospel unless we believe it's the aroma of Christ to bring people to Jesus and bring them into eternity. We're not ashamed of the gospel. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we come to you today. We're not because we've got it all together, but we've got our lives together or that we're perfect and we recognise there's so far for each of us to go. But in a difficult community where people want to stand against us, where we're dismissed and sneered at like Paul, we stand together in this moment and say, Lord, we're not ashamed of the Gospel. You brought us to know You personally. You brought us into the Kingdom of God. You are our cornerstone. Lord, we, we, we have nothing but You. Lord, Your blood and Your righteousness made us right with You. Father, when, when, when darkness hides Your face, we are right with You. Lord, we come to You today, standing on the cornerstone of the Gospel, giving ourselves to You, saying that we're not ashamed of the Gospel. We'll do all we can to bring the Gospel. Will we stand and sing together our cornerstone? The Gospel is where we stand. Lord, be with us as we seek to bring that to our community. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. My name is Anna. I trust that during the service, God was moving in your heart and His presence was where you are. Just before we say goodbye today, I'd love to give you an opportunity to say yes to Jesus. If today's message spoke to you, or you've been considering believing in Jesus as your Saviour, then I would love to invite you to do that now. Would you repeat this short prayer after me? Dear Jesus, I believe that you are the Son of God. I believe that you died for my sins and that you rose again to give me life. I ask you to forgive my sins and be my Lord and my Saviour. I open my heart to you today. Amen. If you said yes to Jesus today, we would love to hear from you. We would love to celebrate with you, pray with you and help you start your Jesus journey. Visit our website manninghamcc.org and go to the I Said Yes page. Fill out your details and one of our leaders will get in touch with you. We would love to hear your story. Hey, thanks for joining in today and being part of our service. If you enjoyed today's service, would you click the share button and subscribe to MCC so you can stay connected? We all need some good news and we would love to hear how God has spoken to you today. Visit manninghamcc.org and fill out a good news story form today. If you would love to know more how to grow in your relationship with God, then Next Steps provides the path for you. Visit manninghamcc.org to find out more. Thanks for watching. We'll see you next time.